Thank you for downloading this sermon. We hope you've been blessed by this ministry. If you'd like to give back, please invest in the future of Clearnote Church through our capital campaign, Faithful Through All Generations. To make a donation, visit clearnotebloomington.com slash give. Would you open your Bibles up to the book of Romans 3, the third chapter, beginning with verse 28, as we go through the book of Romans. We've arrived at the end of the third chapter, and this is the Word of God, not of man, although man was used to write it. God is the one that breathed into it, that inspired it, and so it is eternally true. Romans three twenty-eight to 31. For we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from works of the law? Or is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also. Since indeed, God who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith is one. Do we then nullify the law through faith? May it never be. On the contrary, we establish the law. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Father God, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of each heart here be acceptable in your sight, you who are our strength and our redeemer. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Today we have lost the discipline of argument. We haven't lost the discipline of pumping iron. We haven't lost the discipline of reading carefully the IRS quote. We haven't lost the discipline of learning languages, linguistics. But we have lost the discipline of argument. Since we are self-willed and self-referential and self-vindicated, we recognize no authority outside of ourselves. And least of all, the authority of reason and logic. And so we whine and we complain and we quarrel. Chesterton said that people generally quarrel because they can't argue. And he writes about his brother. He says, my brother Cecil Edward Chesterton was born when I was about five years old, and after a brief pause, he began to argue. He continued to argue to the end. I am glad to think that through all those years, we never stopped arguing and never once quarreled. Perhaps the principal objection to a quarrel is that it interrupts an argument. What is the apostle's tool of evangelization? How does he preach the gospel? How does he win souls to the cross of Jesus Christ? Or what did the apostles do that changed the entire world? They argued. They argued from the scriptures. They employed logic and reason. They used words with meanings and sought to show truth. And it wasn't your truth or their truth or our truth. It was God's truth. The apostle Paul argued. 
This was his tool of gospel witness. This was his evangelization. He argued, for instance, with the Athenians at the Areopagus. He argued with the Ephesians. You remember what happened in Ephesus. The Apostle Paul is arguing people into the kingdom, calling them to believe in Jesus Christ. And you remember there was a guy named Demetrius who was the head of all the craftsmen that made the idols. So they made little figurines that people worshipped, right? And Demetrius got very upset with the Apostle Paul. And so Demetrius said this. He says, about that time there occurred no small disturbance concerning the way. This is what they called Christianity at the time, the way. For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith who made silver shrines of Artemis, their goddess, was bringing no little business to the craftsmen. These he gathered together with the workmen of similar trades and said. So he gets all the people that are making a profit off of making idols. He gets them together and he said this. He said, men, you know that our prosperity depends upon this business. You see in here that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul, so he's going to complain about Paul, what does he say? He says, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a considerable number of people saying that gods made with hands are no gods at all. So you've got the economy built on IU basketball, and in comes a guy that says that basketball doesn't really matter. But everybody has their flags and their tailgating and their, you know, everybody's like... And so what happens is he gets all the people that have restaurants and sell beer and, you know, all this stuff. He gets them all together. And he says, listen, we got to stop this Paul because IU basketball is in great danger. If we keep letting Paul say that, you know, things made by hands aren't gods, you know, thing, little ball is not, not a god, you know, Bobby Knight's gone. We're not going to make money in this town anymore. And so we better do something. And then do you remember what they did? They went to the Apostle Paul, and they got a great champion. And because the Apostle Paul was arguing, what they did was they got a very good arguer, right? And they got this arguer to go argue with Paul because Paul was persuading, so they got somebody to contradict him, right? Is this what they did? You know, somebody that could make logical claims that would be opposite. You know, this man, for instance, would say that the things you make with your hands are God's, right? But that's not what they did. They, they got everybody together, and it ended with a mob scene where the entire city was screaming at the top of their lungs, what? Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Make America great again. And they just went on and on and on and on. So the Apostle Paul's arguing. The Apostle Paul says it's impossible for something you make with your hands to be a god, right? Seems logical, right? But they don't meet logic with logic. What they do is they scream at the top of their lungs. It says for two hours straight. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians, all right? 
Now listen, what this means is that the preaching of the gospel is an argument. But what it also means is that those who come to Jesus Christ are convinced. They're convinced by logic and reason and words. They think words matter. And sadly, in this world today, words simply don't matter. What matters are images, music, sentiment, emotions, Facebook. And certainly, even if you get to the point of arguing about words, you're not arguing about the Word of God, and the Word of God is not the authority upon which the arguments are made. You go to the New Testament, and again and again and again, what you'll find, as a matter of fact, let me... Let me uh, Let me read, this is the Apostle Paul speaking to King Agrippa and Festus, who are Roman rulers, and so he's speaking to them, he's preaching the gospel, and this is what it says, so having obtained from help from God, he says to them, I stand to this day testifying, think of a courtroom, I stand testifying both to small and great, stating, testifying, stating nothing but what the prophets and Moses said was going to take place. So imagine going to the philosophy department of IU. Imagine going to Washington, D.C. and speaking to to the members of the Supreme Court. You know, imagine going any place where there are people of substance, like Roman rulers, like Festus, right? And what you're doing, right, like if you had an audience with the Trump, You're going to go into him, and what are you going to do? Well, this is what the Apostle Paul did. It says that he stated nothing but what the prophets and Moses said was going to take place. So he goes to the Roman rulers, and he argues from the Old Testament to convince them of the gospel. Now, what was it that he was arguing from the Old Testament? Well, he goes on and says, he says, stating nothing more than what the prophets and Moses said was going to take place, that the Christ, well, the Christ is the Messiah, the one God's going to send, that the Christ was to suffer. So the logical proposition that the Apostle Paul wanted to convince the Roman rulers of was that God's anointed one would come and suffer. Now, would any of us go to Washington, D.C., into the White House, into the Oval Office, and argue from Scripture that the Messiah was going to suffer? No, none of us would. I wouldn't, you wouldn't, none of us would. Maybe one of you would, but I don't think I would. I mean, now that I've read this to you, you might think, well, maybe I would. But I still don't think you would. I mean, you're going to talk to Donald Trump? And you're going to tell him that the Messiah in the Scriptures is proclaimed as someone who will suffer. But you know what I'm going to say, right? You know what's coming. I can't think of anything more priceless to say than Donald Trump. Filled with himself, absolutely convinced that single-handedly he can just bully his way around the world and show his strength and show his negotiation powers and rattle the metal of our military and our financial district. And that man 
what he needs to hear is that all of Scripture says that God's anointed will come and suffer. Because nothing is more destructive of Donald Trump's worldview than that the one God sends to change the world will be sent to suffer. I mean, think about that. That has to be God's truth, because it's certainly not man's truth, right? You see, we're so patronizing to God. We, we always have better ways of doing things than God does. Not one of us would ever have sent the Messiah to come and suffer. I mean, how is the world ever going to respect somebody that comes and suffers? You know, he needs to be a victor. He needs to make America grow great again. And God's wisdom is that his son will come and suffer. And so that's what the Apostle Paul does. He goes to the Roman rulers. He goes into the Areopagus, the most sophisticated brains that have ever been on the face of the earth in, in Athens. And what does he tell them? He says that this God is the one in whom we live and move and what? Have our being. You know, you've got the pantheon of gods of Rome. They have every god of every country they've ever conquered. The more the merrier, because you give people their gods, and they'll be pacified. And here comes the Apostle Paul into Athens, into the seat of the rulers of Athens, the Areopagus. And he says, in him we live and move and have our being. It's an argument. It's a truth. It's words. It's logic. It's reason. When we look at how the Apostle Paul preached the gospel in Thessalonica, we see the same thing in in Acts 17. We have the account of Paul coming there. And it says, Now when they had traveled through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And then it says, And according to Paul's custom, in other words, this was his habit. According to Paul's custom, he went to them, and for three Sabbaths, reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and giving evidence what? So for three Sundays, it was a Sabbath. He went in there, and for three Sundays, look, he's a Jew. He argued. For three Sundays, he argued. It was his habit to argue with them from the scriptures, explaining and giving evidence that what? Well, you know what's coming. That the Christ, the Messiah, the anointed one, would suffer. It was as scandalous to the Jews as it was to the Romans. Nobody wants a hero that suffers. No one. You know? It's pathetic. explaining and giving evidence that the Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead and saying, this Jesus whom I am proclaiming to you is the Christ. And then it says, and some of them were what? Persuaded. We have such a tendency to, to, to look down our noses at logic and reason and, and to think that if we argue with people that that's not love. Love is what? Flattering them? 
That's the only other option. Facebook is either arguments or flattery. It's never anything in between. And so what are we going to do? We're going to believe in the power of the word written as God has revealed it to us. We are the people of the book. From the very beginning, we are the people of the book. We've lost the ability to argue. And so we quarrel. Everything's personal. We've lost the ability to persuade, to convince with logic and reason. Everything has become personal, and so sentiment rules today. Everything is political, which is to say everything is personal. There is no such thing as an objective truth. We say to one another, but it's the truth. And our response, whether we say it or just think it silently, is I don't care. I don't like it, and so I'm not going to agree. Argument and persuasion were not simply the tool the apostles used to evangelize, but they're also the tool they used to build up the church in our most holy faith. And here we see the Apostle Paul declaring this in our text almost as an afterthought, where he says what? What does he say? He says, for what? We maintain, and he's not talking about, you know, a mop and a bucket. This isn't maintenance in that sort. We maintain. This is intellectual and verbal pugilism. Okay? This is MMA intellectual. We maintain. I am arguing, he says, that a man is justified by faith. Now, by now, after three chapters of Romans, we know this is what he's arguing. He is arguing that a man is justified by faith. Hey, listen, if you don't care to read, if you don't care to argue, if you don't care about being persuaded, if you don't care about truth, if what you care is your weak little ego getting stroked by your mama, you're not there listening to the Apostle Paul. Only the people that cared about truth and words, and logic, and meaning were there listening to the Apostle Paul. They thought it mattered. And so here he is. Listen, if you don't read, and you don't understand that to worship God is to listen to his words, then you're not reading this letter that he's sending to the Romans. You just think that's stuff for sissies, letters, you know. Churches for sissies. Real men build their thing, their lives on heart things. You know, like 350 XLTs, really hard things. Guns, holsters, basketball, who knows? Pigs, (laughs) you know? Listen, there's nothing harder than truth, nothing. Heaven and earth will pass away. You remember what Jesus said at the beginning of his ministry, his most famous sermon. He began by saying what? Do you remember? He said, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will not see the kingdom of God. So he takes their top religious leaders, and he says to everyone on the mountaintop, he says, unless your righteousness exceeds that of your religious leaders, your pastors and elders, you will never enter the kingdom of God. Now that's a proposition. That is a declaration. That is either a truth or a lie. And that has eternity at stake. 
right? Right? And so your response should be, what? What? Are you serious? We built our lives on what our Pharisees teach us. And you're telling me, unless my righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, I won't enter the kingdom of God? What? And then what does he do? He then says, heaven and earth will pass away before a single jot or tittle of the law. And what that means is before one comma, one colon, semicolon, quotation mark, before the tiniest vowel pointing, because that's how, you know, the tiniest mark of a pen, okay, heaven and earth will pass away before one tiniest mark of a pen in the word of God will pass away, okay, so you with me, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you'll never enter the king, heaven and earth is going to pass away before a single mark of scripture passes away, and then what does he do? Do you remember? He then goes right into the statement that repeats again and again and again, which is what? You have heard that it is said to you that you shall not murder. You remember? But I tell you that any man that says thou fool is guilty of hell fire, is guilty of murder. You've said that, it, that a man shouldn't commit adultery, but I tell you any man that looks at a woman with lust in his eye. In other words, Jesus says, look, your righteousness has to exceed that of the scribes and Pharisees. And then he says, heaven and earth will pass away before a single jar or tittle of the law will pass away. And then he says, you've heard it said, but I say to you, what Jesus is doing is Jesus is showing that the law of God in the Old Testament was never amount of external conformity. It was never superficial. It was not, never what, whether you please your mama. It was never what the people in the pews think of you. It was what's going on in your heart. And heaven and earth will pass away before one tiny statement of the Old Testament will pass away. You've heard it was said to you that you shall not murder. You've heard it was said to you you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you. And what Jesus does is he intensifies, 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 intensifies. It's very easy for all of us to be conformists, okay? It's very easy for all of us to fool our mothers and to fool our neighbors. And some of us can fool our wives. But there's no fooling God. God has never commanded conformity to other sheep. What God commands is that our hearts are open before him. And we can't hide from him. And so, again, I say to you that truth is a very hard thing. Conformity and sentiment and emotions and flattery, they're easy. But when you look at your heart, and you see the truth about your heart, that's a hard thing. And the world is separated into two categories of people, those who look at their heart and can't bear it and try to medicate themselves. 
And there are an infinite variety of ways of medicating themselves. Everybody, when I say that, thinks of opioids and, and alcohol, right? But shoot, <laughs> that's just a tiny group of people. Most people medicate themselves with money, with marriage, with religion, with church membership, medicate themselves with something. You know, up north, a lot of people medicate themselves with ice fishing. There are all kinds of ways of taking your mind off the holiness of God and your own sinfulness. But then that means that you're medicating yourself against God because we only begin to know God when we know ourselves and acknowledge who we are before God. There is no knowledge of God that does not lead and is inextricably bound to knowledge of self. That's why Calvin begins the Institutes by saying that true religion consists of knowing yourself and knowing God. It's not complicated, but those truths are very hard. Those truths are unyielding. You can't argue out of those truths. You can medicate yourself out of them, but you can't. You can't deny them. And so here the Apostle Paul is saying, we have maintained, I've been arguing what? That a man is justified by faith. And, you know, can you really think of a truth that's more contradictory of every religion that has ever existed than this truth? Every conceit of liberals, you know, you look at the whole homosexual rights movement, what is it? It's an attempt to deny that God is holy. And that when God says he will make man and woman, that is binding on all of us. It doesn't matter if I want a man. It doesn't matter if you want a woman, if you're a woman. What matters is God made us men and women, and he says that we are to marry men and women. But oh boy, we just hate being told what to do. And so what we do is we try to get everybody to deny that this is a truth. And so what we do is manufacture gender, and then gender is a choice, and it's a continuum, and people can exist at different places, and we're just all so busy trying to deny truth. All these arguments in favor of the homosexualist, LGBTQPIS, whatever it is, movement, all of these are arguments. They're hard arguments that God is wrong and is not to be believed. Don't ever think that it's religious people that are dogmatic. There's nobody more dogmatic than an intolerant liberal. And by the way, that's a redundancy. <laughs> the very definition of liberalism that it's intolerant. What is it intolerant of? It's intolerant of women who are beautiful instead of men. Do you get it? Right? Women are supposed to be the ones that are free to be beautiful. Men are supposed to protect women's ability to be beautiful. But instead, we got a bunch of men trying to outdo women in being beautiful. Now that is oppressive. Why should any woman have to fight for the privilege of being beauty? But you know, they never say this. But it seems obvious to me. You ever seen a woman, a new mother with her child? 
Has it ever been anything other than clear to you that that's the most gaga beautiful sight on the face of the earth? Why should she have to fight with gay men for beauty? Now, okay, 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 okay. So, like, you want me to, okay, all right, okay. And every single, every, I mean, you have the Supreme Court saying that a woman has a choice to kill her unborn child. Is there anything more beautiful than a little baby? (laughs) There's nothing more beautiful. And yet they say we're dogmatic. Because we say, you know, please don't kill the babies. Don't be so dogmatic. Well, one of us is going to end up with no blood and one with blood. Which one's dogmatic? Do you you understand truth is a hard thing? Don't you ever believe the conceit that liberals are soft and compassionate and Christians are hard and moralistic? No, Christians are just arguing that the little baby should not have his blood shed. That's not dogmatic. That's like pretty liberal. That's like tolerant. That's like life-affirming. That's like uh, sustainability. (laughs) It's just like insane. Truth is hard. I'll never forget, when I was younger, I I was a pacifist. I was a fool. I was a pacifist. And uh, then I heard Chuck Colson speak. This was after he became a Christian, repented of being Nixon's hatchet man. And uh, Chuck Colson said, look, he said, Christians don't believe in capital punishment and war because they don't value life. Christians believe in them because they do value life. And they believe that life is so important that it is worth giving your life up to protect it. And all of a sudden, I was liberated. My chains fell off. How? Well, a man made an argument. I was convinced. And that argument was hard. The Apostle Paul says what? He says, we maintain that a man is justified by faith. And so you think of all the little laws. I have an obsession when I'm in a parking lot of picking up litter. Why? Is it because God says don't litter? No, it's because I've sucked in my culture. And so I'm just horrified by people that are so disrespectful of the public square that they drop stuff. Right? But I mean, in the larger scheme of things, how important is that? I mean, can we all be honest? You know, I've been to Africa, and it seems like maybe it isn't as important as I think it is. And you say, oh, no, 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 littering's a sin. Okay, okay, it's a sin. But meanwhile, we're slaughtering unborn children and we're saying that two men should get married. So you see, what, what always happens is the laws of God are replaced with the laws of men and then they voluminate, they bloviate, they, 
they metastasize and they grow 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 and pretty soon you have so many laws that the nanny state requires you to keep that you forget God's law and that's the whole point. That's the whole point. You just forget about fearing God and keeping his word. You forget about your heart as long as you don't toss that you know, candy wrapper out the window, you're clean, right? We maintain what? We maintain that a man is justified by faith. Is there one liberal in this country that believes that a man is justified by faith? Now, now, every liberal believes that a man is justified by his works. And the only difference between liberals is which works they think will justify you. Only Christians believe that a man is justified by faith. Only Christians. But what is the object of a Christian's faith? It's Jesus Christ. What about Jesus Christ? Well, you just remember, I've shown you what the Apostle Paul kept trying to persuade people of, right? He tried to persuade them what? That the Messiah would suffer. So something about the gospel and being saved is involved with the concept, the truth, that the Messiah will suffer. Now, why would the Messiah have to suffer? Well, the Messiah has to suffer because his suffering takes the place of ours. We, liberals and conservatives alike, black, white, yellow, all of us together, stand before one holy God. And we are wicked, every one of us. And he bore our sins on the cross. He suffered on the cross to pay the penalty for our sins. And so a man is justified by faith. By faith in whom? By faith in Jesus. By faith in that suffering. propositional truth. A man becomes righteous in God's eyes, not by what he does, but by his faith. His faith in whom? His faith in Jesus. And so right there, sitting there, right now, you either have faith in yourself or you have faith in Jesus. There's no other option. And liberals are defined by having faith in themselves. And I'm not saying Republicans are defined by having faith in God. <laughs> I mean, that's, that's like a howler, <laughs> you know? This is not a political argument. I'm using liberal not in the sense of Democrat. I'm using liberal in the sense of moralistic, uh, judgmental, superior, supercilious snobs. Who drive Priuses which most people here know I can say because I drive a Prius. Do you, do you understand? He is making a logical argument. We maintain that a man is justified by faith. And then, even though he now has three chapters under his belt of harping on this subject, the Apostle Paul harps on it again, and he says this, apart from works of the law. Now, why does he do that? Well, he does that because we're always trying to import 
some pride of our own to the work of Jesus, okay? Does that make sense? We're always trying to say, well, yeah, it's Jesus, but it's also me. And so he says, no, apart from works of the law. And so then what we do is just what the Roman Catholics did in the Middle Ages at the time of the Reformation, which is where what they said was, okay, okay, it's faith, but faith working itself through love, which is what Galatians says. And then they said that that faith actually is not efficacious unless it's combined with love. You know, you see the beatific vision, you're motivated, you go to the sacraments, you do all these things, and then what we see is faith working through love, right? Which is what Galatians says, right? But what they really say is faith working its way through love. And this is why you always, when you talk to a Roman Catholic, maybe they don't say this anymore, but when I was growing up, they always said this. You'd say to them, are you a Christian? And they would always say what? They'd always say, I'm a Catholic. And then you'd say, well, yeah, but are you a Christian? And they would then say, I am what? They would either say one of two things. They would either say, well, I'm not a good Catholic, or they would say, I'm a practicing Catholic. Nobody ever said, I'm a good Catholic. And what they were saying to you is, well, I'm working hard on my love. Love is motivated by the sacraments. Love is motivated by, you know, auricular confession. It's motivated by the Mass. It's motivated by um, the bishop coming and, and, and confirming you. It's motivated by last rites. Everything is done in such a way that when you die, you will have enough love that you will be welcomed into the presence of God. If it's not done, you'll go to purgatory because it's a finishing school, okay? What is all of that? All of that is the works of the law. We are always trying to add to the work of Christ, but the work of Christ, it says in Hebrews, is finished. It's completed. It's once for all. It doesn't have to be sacrificed every single Sunday or every single day because Jesus finished it. He said, it is finished. So why do we keep doing this? Well, because it's the nature of religion to try to bring something in our hands to God. And the Apostle Paul says what? Apart from works of the law. Apart. So... What are you clinging to? You're clinging to your children? You're clinging to the job you've done raising them? You're clinging to the faith of your grandmother? You're clinging to the church you belong to? You're clinging to, you know, how many years you've been dry? You're clinging to the fact that you haven't committed adultery? Physically. Think of all the things that we want to cling to as we stand before the holy God. And the Old Testament says that all our works of righteousness are bloody rags. Whatever you want to cling to, whether it's mass or sustainability, is bloody rags before God. Why? Well... (laughs) Because God is jealous for his own glory, and he ain't going to share it with you. It is finished, was his cry. He is not going to allow you to try to clothe yourself in his presence. He will not tolerate it, because his son did the work.
and you either throw yourself completely on his son or there is no hope for you. And that's a hard truth. And if you spend your life trying to explain how God is wrong, knock your socks off. But it's appointed unto man once to die and after this the judgment. And he is a consuming fire. And there is only one God. You're not going to get a choice after death to choose which God will judge you. Artemis of the Ephesians or the living God. There is only one God. Jew, Greek, slave-free, circumcised, uncircumcised. There's not one path for the Jews and another path for the Gentiles. There's not one path for Southern and Northern Hemisphere. There's not one path for Chinese. There's not one path for Americans. There is nothing national, cultural, ethnic, lingua. There's nothing about Christianity that is particular to any group. Because he says this. He says it's the same for both Jews and Gentiles. A man is justified by faith apart from the law. Is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also. Since indeed God who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith is what? Is what? There isn't a God for Gentiles and another God for the Jews. There's not. There is not one God for, for, for liberals and another for conservatives. There is one God. He made the universe. In him we live and move and have our being. And the only way to stand before God is to stand by faith in Christ. Because he has done the work. And faith is the instrument that God uses to transfer you from death to life. And so when you get up in the morning and you think what a hypocrite you are. Anybody? Okay. You go to bed at night and you can't sleep because of your memory, of your sins of your youth, your sins of your middle age. You cannot get out of your mind how you have destroyed your marriage and your children. Anybody? What What is going to protect you at that moment? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What are you going to do? You're going to think, well, I don't litter. (laughs) It's like, seriously? Well, no, sustainability. Being a member of Clear Note Church, now that should do That should count for something. It's nothing. It's absolutely nothing. Listen, listen to me. If your children don't know that this is what you have faith in, if your children are proud, they don't know you have faith in Jesus Christ. Hey, 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 did you hear what I just said? If your children are proud, they do not know that you have faith in Jesus Christ alone. Now, did you hear me? Don't claim that you have faith in Jesus when people see that you're proud. Uh Uh-uh. It is impossible to be proud and to cling to Christ alone. 
You know why I said that? Because right before I came in, a wonderful woman said to me, she'd heard the first sermon, and she said, you know that every single one of the children of this church that I taught this last year, they were all presumptuous and, what was the word she used? I don't think she's here. My phone. This is the way I try to stop preaching. I said it. Everybody can hear it, so. What's the word? It's not, huh? Yes, impertinent. Impertinent? Are you serious that we love Jesus and cling to him, and we have impertinent children? Honestly? Okay. Okay, let's stop. Let's stop. Please love Jesus. Do not think you can impress God. The only thing that impresses God is that you will not let go of Jesus. Do you know, I've mentioned this before, and I'll end with this. There are times where my awareness of my sin is so overwhelming to me that I think it's impossible that I'm saved, okay? I'm sorry, but that's the truth. And do you know what I think at those times? <laughs> this is like... This is true. What I think at those times is, I say to myself, I do not care if God damns me. I will not let go. I would rather be damned by God than ever leave him. I won't leave him. You know, and that's why I think one of my favorite stories of the New Testament is that woman, you know, the Syrophoenician woman, you know, he says, I didn't come for you. I came for the lost sheep of Israel. And she says, hey, what about the dogs under the table? You know, shouldn't they get the crumbs? <laughs> and so God blessed her. And so I want you to cling to the righteousness of Jesus Christ and make it clear to everybody that that is all you have going for you, okay? That's the only thing you have going for you. Okay? Let's pray. Father, you know us and our sin, and you know that we are a hopeless bunch. We thank you that Jesus came to save sinners. And we pray, Father, that we will not be ashamed to confess our sin and to plead for mercy. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.